3: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, millions of California children have returned to school this month with joy and fear, as the pandemic brings a whole new meaning to first day of school jitters. The stress of positive virus tests and the scars of the last 18 months have accompanied the usual excitement of a brand new school year. As a fraction of schools have already had to quarantine classrooms due to positive tests, we take a closer look this hour at California's reopening guidelines for keeping kids safe amid the Delta variant. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As students re-entered classrooms this month, emotions have ranged from joy, relief, and fear to even sadness at time lost for students and parents across California. In some cases, the Delta variant has tarnished the excitement of a school year more closely resembling pre-pandemic days. Some parents have signed up for independent study or are calling again for remote learning options. Still, state officials continue to back a full reopening, pointing to student mental health declines and academic struggles. So this hour, we review California's guidelines for keeping kids safe and take a closer look at how some districts are implementing them. And joining us first is Goodiel Crossway, Superintendent of Linwood Unified School District. Superintendent Crossway, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here.
3: When was your first day of school and... How did it feel to launch a full reopening as superintendent?
4: Yesterday was our first full day of school. And to be honest with you, I was super excited and actually had a hard time going to bed the night before. Woke up extra early to be at our school sites. And it was a very emotional day for me because it was the first time in almost uh, 18 months that we saw all of our kids and staff back at our school sites And it was just really a warm feeling. And it also just was an indication and a reminder that we have persevered. And here we are. And we're doing the right thing by kids.
3: So tell us about Linwood's student population. and, And what are the biggest challenges that you feel like you face in terms of minimizing the impact of the pandemic?
4: Linwood is located about 10 miles south of L.A., And we are a historically underserved community. We currently serve about 13,000 students, Uh, 94% or so are unduplicated count or uh, qualify for what's known as free and reduced lunch. And our demographics are about 94% Latino and about four to 5% African American. Uh, And again, we have two high schools, uh, two middle schools and 12 elementary schools and a preschool at every school site. Some of the biggest challenges for us is that, you know, during the, the pandemic and during that surge, for a community of about 73,000 people, we had over 13,000 who tested positive during the months of January uh, and December of last year. And so, of course, the community was hit hard. And for us as educators, as much as we were trying to emphasize the academics, the social emotional well being, the reality for our families is that many of them, didn't have the luxury to work remotely. And they had to go into work and they had to overcome their anxieties and their issues. But for them, if they didn't work, then they couldn't put food on the table and pay for their housing. And on top of that, dealing with the social justice issues across our nation, Mm -hmm. it was uh, extremely challenging um, and created some additional challenges for our families. And I would say that aside from that, one of our challenges in our community is unfortunately families had to decide, do I pay for the broadband internet access mm-hmm. or do I use what little I have to make sure that our family has food on the table? And families shouldn't have to make those decisions. And and those are just a, just a little sample of just some of the challenges that we had here in our new community.
3: Well, I know that California has mandated masks for all K-12 students when indoors at schools. And required vaccines or regular testing for teachers and school staff. With the high numbers that you've had, where have you enacted stricter rules than the state has mandated or recommended?
4: Well, one of the things that we did early on is because we did not have sufficient even COVID testing last fall. We were able to gather the support of our Department of Public Health, LA County Board of Supervisors, And we partnered with St. John's to make sure that we had additional testing here in the community. And then on top of that, once the vaccines became available, we had our students and our family and community members create uh, public service announcements in English and in Spanish that they can see that the vaccines were safe and effective. We have a mobile uh, vaccine clinic with St. John's that's on our campuses on, on Mondays and Wednesdays. And that's been instrumental. But on top of that, is reassuring our families, our kids, and our staff that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that they're safe. So one is making sure that they have accurate and timely information, uh, making sure that the uh, information is accessible to them. So one of the things that I do as a superintendent is I have a monthly Facebook Live. I have a weekly phone call that goes out to the community. And oftentimes I'm also uh, making sure that any information that comes to us from the Department of Public Health is also being transmitted to our staff and our families in an easy and accessible format. And then on top of that, we worked with our staff. And so what, one of the things that we heard very loudly from them is they wanted to make sure that not only we had face masks as a non negotiable for our students and staff, but that we also had proper ventilation. Mm-hmm. So initially we did buy the sneeze guards, but we actually contracted with another company to help us ensure that we're properly maintaining our HVAC system. We purchased the MERV 13 filters, which is one of the things that was initially recommended and and really doing a lot of training to make sure that we have staff that have the capacity for the contact tracing. And then additionally, one of the things that we were fortunate enough with the LA County Office of Education and the Department of Public Health is we're part of a pilot program where we're going to start the weekly testing of all of our students and staff. Mm. And we're doing this not because we're concerned about the transmission happening at schools, but because it's also an an early indicator for the community so that we can help contain and stop the spread of of COVID-19.
3: That's interesting, because I do know that uh, districts across California have chosen a range of testing strategies, and it's interesting to hear what you have decided to go with. I want to bring Dr. Erica Pon into the conversation, California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at the California Department of Public Health. Dr. Pon, really glad to have you on Forum.
5: Great. Thanks so much for having me this morning.
3: As I'm listening to uh, Superintendent Crosswaite describe the testing strategy that his district has come up with, I do want to ask you, what are the best practices for testing uh, at schools, especially with regard to the Delta variant circulating right now?
5: Yeah, that's a great question, and um, I think what we have tried to do is provide sort of a menu of options, because um, just like other aspects of um, of school protection and prevention, there are some things that are uh, easier to operationalize than others, and all of these layers help together. You know, if we talk about that sort of layers of Swiss cheese to prevent virus transmission, and every layer helps. Um, as far as some, you know, different variations, I think both uh, we and the CDC uh, talk about as levels of transmission are higher in a community. Um, so right now, when a lot of case rates are high in many communities, we um, we think testing, you know, more frequently can be more useful. Um, and then there are some techniques where at my daughter's school, actually, they're doing pool testing where they're um, able to test the kids and this, the teachers, uh, and they're actually going to start uh trying to do it twice a week now but they they pull it so that they can get the whole classroom all in one test and then you can do a screening and then if any of those are positive which um you know many schools have done this in other settings especially at the end of last year and had none and then if you do have one then you go back and test individually so increasing frequency um certainly you know it's there's a few different reasons to be doing it as well it's kind of to get a general sense of what your levels are in your yes. community um and then preventing cases coming into the community Um, And just being able to monitor that over time.
3: And so operational issues aside, if you could just recommend the best frequency, would you say it's weekly?
5: Um, Again, it'll depend a little bit on the levels of community transmission, because that's where, um, you know, again, we've seen over and over in other um, settings that even when community transmission is high, uh, you can keep uh, the school setting safer. But one of the ways to do that is is testing and or increasing testing. So, you know, the highest frequency, the range is up to two times a week, but weekly is reasonable. Some schools have sort of rotated their testing amongst different people, you know, every two weeks. So I think there's a variation and that's okay. I think every bit of data and every layer of, of mitigation is helpful.
3: And in terms of parents, can they opt out of school-based testing?
5: I think each school is handling that uh, individually at a school level.
3: Uh, Superintendent Crosswit, what is Linwood's rule around that in terms of the testing pilot that you're going to put in place? Can parents opt out of it?
4: We want to work with parents to educate them on the importance of testing and making sure that they feel comfortable with it. Whereas at the same time, we want to provide them with options so that if they don't give us consent, we won't be able to test the students, obviously, but we don't want to exclude them at the same time. So we're hoping that all of our families here, as we start getting the consent, that they'll be supportive and understand that this is uh, something that will help and benefit the entire community, aside from the students in the actual classroom.
3: How are the schools enforcing, say, the, the state mask mandate?
4: Well, right now, to be honest with you, it's our second day. It's been, the students have been very supportive and we have no issues with them. However, we do have some students who have some medical exemptions and we're trying to figure out ways to best support them because the independent studies program for a student who may have an IEP may not be the most effective way to support them academically uh, given their medical condition as well. But here it's uh, very strongly supported by our staff our parents as well as our students the kids are just happy to be back in school and see <laughs> yes. their friends
3: yes they are we're talking with Goodell crossway superintendent for Linwood unified school district and dr erica Pond, california state epidemiologist and deputy director for the center for infectious diseases we're hearing how back to school month is going for california's school children and their families we're reviewing the state's guidelines with regard to how to keep kids safe amid a circulating Delta variant. And uh, we are also learning how districts are implementing these rules. And uh, you can join the conversation with your thoughts and questions. You can email us forum at kqbd.org. Or you can post your comments on Twitter or Facebook. or at KQED Forum. And you can always give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, that's 866-733-6786. We'll have more with our guests after the break and have a few others join us. So stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. You're listening to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at what you can expect at schools, trying to navigate a full reopening as the pandemic continues. And we're talking with Dr. Erica Apon, California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at California's Department of Public Health. Supervisor Gudiel Crossway is with us. Uh, sorry, Superintendent Gudiel Crossway is with us, Superintendent of Linwood Unified School District near Los Angeles. And also joining us now is Vanessa Rancano, Education Reporter for KQED. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amina. Vanessa,
2: just before the break,
3: Superintendent uh, Crosswaite mentioned independent study, especially for kids who may have some medical issues that would prohibit them from being in a school classroom potentially. But uh, what I wanted to ask you was there have been quite a few changes this school year with regard to uh, distance learning options, remote learning options. Could you remind us how they changed for
2: 2021-22? Sure. So I think you have to remember that distance learning as we came to know it last school year was this pretty exceptional thing, right? Lawmakers actually had to create these new rules to govern how that was going to work. And they let that law expire. I mean, they really wanted to see a full return to in-person learning. And so when that law expired, we're in a way going back to the status quo and traditionally the tool that we have for kids who aren't going to be in the classroom to study is independent study so they made some changes to bolster how independent study is going to work right like stricter curriculum requirements and stuff around instructional minutes but basically districts are having to figure out how to serve far more kids through these independent study programs that were traditionally pretty small And to give you an example out of Oakland Unified, where I was doing this um, reporting, that program typically serves about 200 students in a year, almost all high school students, right? It might be like 15 or 20 K through 5 students. And going into this school year, they had over 600 students enrolled and more than 200 students on a wait list, which I'm told has continued to grow. And Mm. it was more than 300 kids that were TK through fifth grade students, which is really this like new ball game for them so it's it's been a really messy rollout um in oakland for sure where they're still understaffed i was just checking in with a parent this morning who her elementary age kids still don't have a teacher it's central office staff that's sort of sitting in with them on zoom for half half an hour each day and then they're doing um work packets at home, right? I mean, they're severely understaffed and schools around the state are dealing with staffing shortages in general. So it's not a great time to be trying to fill, you know, a dozen or more teaching positions.
3: Superintendent Crosswaite, how have you managed to set up an independent study program for students who do not want to be in person. And have you experienced some of the same challenges of having enough teachers or being swamped with applications?
4: Yeah, we actually had additional teachers in preparation, and we really weren't sure what numbers we were going to see for independent studies. But to be honest with you, we were preparing for about 10% of our kids, given the circumstances and what we experience here in the community with the surge. And so we were anticipating over a thousand students would be more than uh, a little bit, about close to, 10, 10, close to 10%. And the reality is that we actually have uh, less than 2% of our students who have opted to enroll in the independent studies. And so we, again, we're just in our second day. We had families who acquired. We had close to 500 families who inquired about the independent studies by the end of last week. And then about 180 who actually attended the uh, required orientation, Uh, but we have had an increase. So normally in a regular year, we would have between 140 to 200 students in independent studies, primarily at the secondary level. And right now we're closer to 300 who are interested uh, K-12 the difficulty that we're having or the challenge that we're trying to overcome is how do we support students who may have to go into quarantine and not do for the 15 days to kick in the independent study. Yes. But again, we don't want those kids to be left home alone with the packet without the support of a teacher and then fall further behind. And so we're trying to, as our board mentioned last night at our board meeting, we're not about the minimum or about or meeting compliance we're about doing what's right for the kids
3: so right now for example if if a student in a very short time frame did in fact in fact get infected or needed to quarantine they would be sent home with a packet for that quarantine period whether it lasts 10 days or 14 days. is that what you're saying?
4: We have the packets ready for the elementary at the high school level we partner with APEX, which is an online platform to support students during that. However, one of the things that we have in our system is all of our teachers across the district have what's known as a matrix. And it's basically a focus in terms of what they're going to be teaching during that, those five weeks. So regardless of what school you're at, what teacher you have in in our district, we're all emphasizing that same content area and we can reinforce that if a student does need to go home and follow mm-hmm. up with some additional support
3: as well. But it sounds like your hope is to be able to create a virtual option, meaning where they may have a live teacher for some of that time if they're in yes.
4: Yes, absolutely, because it's so important for us to be able to check in on the kids and follow up and see what they're doing and support the families because our families are not at home. They're off working, and we want to be able to find something that's a nice balance between having to stay home for everyone's safety, but at the same time, making sure that that student and that family is supported. because our families may be working two jobs. And if they have to come home at night or miss a day of work to stay with their child, that's another challenge as well. So it's a little bit unique here. But we got to be creative and figure out how do we best support all of our families, even when they have to quarantine and stay home.
3: I know you need to leave us, but I, I am wondering, especially in light of the initial challenges that you described, especially in the last eighteen months, if you are seeing evidence of sort of pandemic-impacted students. We know that students have gone through a range of in some cases, traumas and tragedies in their families as a result of the pandemic. And if you are seeing that, what have you put in place to try to address that?
4: Great question. Uh, Right at the very beginning of the pandemic, around April, we actually set up a hotline that's um, operated by our social workers. And it's basically a mental health hotline for our students and our families. And by the end of the summer, we had serviced 800 families, we quickly expanded our food pantry that was servicing about 50 families a week to more than 500 families every week. And we had to partner with our local churches, the uh, Linwood City, the Sheriff's Department, because we had cars lined up for blocks waiting for access to the food. The other thing is, is making sure that we continue supporting our teachers. And as of this year, we have already had four sessions to support our teachers with mental health because we want them to be as best as they can in order for them to be there for our kids. And again, these are partnerships that we're developing with our local nonprofits, including Kaiser, because we don't necessarily have that expertise, but we also recognize that there are some things that we need to do differently and we need Mm -hmm. to take care of each other, make sure that we're there 100% because otherwise we can't be there 100% for our students.
3: Well, I understand there's been some additional state and federal pandemic funding to try to address that. So my hope is that uh, that is a help to you. Superintendent Crossway, really appreciate having you on.
4: Thank you so much. And to the rest of your day.
3: Guriel Crossway, superintendent of Linwood Unified School District. Still with us is Vanessa D'Ancaño, education reporter for KQED, and Dr. Eric. Erica Pond, California State Epidemiologist and Deputy Director for the Center for Infectious Diseases at California's Department of Public Health. And and Dr. Pond, I just want to back up a little bit and review some of the core um, state mandates that we've had. One of them being, of course, uh, masking indoors. One of the questions that we get a lot from parents and listeners, is why not require masking at all times, including outdoors, and just only to remove them when eating?
5: Sure, that's a great question. And I actually just quickly want to give a huge shout out to uh, Superintendent Crosswaite and all the um, school administrators and teachers and parents who are working hard together to um, have our community effort to get our kids safely back in schools. As far as um, universal masking indoors, so we know, you know, we've learned so much over the course of this pandemic and learned a lot between sort of the beginning of school year last year and now, and we um, still overwhelmingly see the highest risks are indoors um, and that can be mitigated with um, good ventilation, good air exchange, open windows. um, And we really have not seen significant evidence of transmission outdoors, um, especially when, uh, you know, again, there's, uh, I think there might be some rare situations where, you know, in crowded concerts, um, there've been recent uh, reports with Delta in a couple situations uh, when, you know, literally in like a mosh pit where people are on top of each other, that that might be, and it makes sense, right? If you're kind of in each other's faces, but in general, uh, the risk of transmission outdoors is, is, is very low and it is nice to, um, you know, have that break to be outdoors.
3: Culver City Unified in LA County has just required all eligible students to be vaccinated against COVID-19 meaning uh, those 12 and over and is believed potentially to be the first district in California to do this. I'm wondering why the state has stopped short of requiring COVID-19 vaccines for eligible students.
5: I think we really want to, you know, similar to what Superintendent Crossway was saying about working with families um, to to get their questions answered and to get their confidence, I think is really what we want to do, especially around kids. Um, That being said, I think, you know, less than half of our 12 to 17 year olds in California are vaccinated and we absolutely... Uh, feel that it's extremely important for you know for our eligible teens and and the, all all the adults that are in households and caring for our kids to get vaccinated as well.
3: Well, we also were hearing uh, you know from, uh, state superintendent Tony Thurmond that he was really excited about this and applauding this. So it was interesting to see why the state may not do this. I mean, within reasonable, um, expectations. For example, I believe that uh, Culver City is giving parents and families until, say, November to do this. Um, and, And so, you know, just wondering, is there some inconsistency there in terms of state officials and their messaging around what is the right and best thing to do?
5: Well, I think as a reminder, we actually did just issue uh, sort of an order that all staff do need to get vaccinated. Um, You know, they do have the option to get tested, um, if not, but I think that was the most recent. And I think, you know, we'll be watching and monitoring this closely, especially as, um, you know, uh, uh, we're all monitoring closely as well when the FDA will do the full approval, because we know that uh, despite the fact that, you know, we have more data on millions of people who are vaccinated than we typically accumulate when new vaccines are introduced. Um, I think there are a lot of parents that want to see that uh, FDA approval, the full approval after the emergency use authorization. Um, but, you know, we continue to think about these policies and monitor as well and um, and monitor the impact of this first school district um,
3: as well. We've heard that students in Fresno and Oakland have had to be quarantined, that the districts have had to quarantine whole classes Days after school opened, I believe it was when there was a cluster of three or more potentially linked cases. Is that when a classroom must halt? Uh, It's, you know, halt actually being held? Is that when an outbreak is, is that what defines an outbreak? So an outbreak is technically defined as at least
5: three cases within um, a two-week period uh, within a specific school setting. I think, you know, again, there's this constant balance of trying to make sure when you do identify cases, you Uh, want to really, again, the the goal is to prevent in-school transmission. So we want to be able to remove the case themselves. And then if there are people who are exposed, it could be incubating. That being said, that's the other great reason uh, for universal masking indoors and what we've done, given data, uh, again, from other states and, and the CDC also supports this, having what we call a modified quarantine. So if the individual case and the the student uh, who was exposed were both wearing their masks correctly, they can actually continue to be in school. We're calling it a modified quarantine and they can actually still continue to attend and ideally get tested as well. But it's another way to try to minimize disruption in the schools. Um, So again, that balance of uh, trying not to have any in-school transmission, um, but also having as much in-seat time as possible.
3: Yes, I think I recently saw a memo about modified quarantine that listeners can access on the California Department of Public Health's website. What is the best practice, Dr. Pond, when a student tests positive? What should what should happen immediately, and what should parents do? Sure. Uh,
5: so uh, the most immediate thing, of course, is to, uh, if the student has been in school or, or staff, for that matter, because typically we are seeing a lot more adult cases rather than, um, especially pre-vaccination. Hopefully that will um, you know, in vaccination in general, again, is our key tool to minimize the possibility of um, in-school transmission. So if a case is identified, that case should be isolated. It's a 10-day period um, of isolation at uh, away from others. And then there should be a contact investigation or contact tracing as people have been identifying it as, which is to figure out who might've been, um, you know, with that person, you know, for longer than 15 minutes, uh, sharing airspace. And then the, what comes into play here again, as far as the modified quarantine is if both were wearing masks and they were doing it correctly and it was monitored, then they can do this, this modified quarantine where they can still be in school. They're, um, they're not allowed to do other out-of-school activities. So that's why it's what we're calling a modified quarantine. But again, really trying to prioritize um, in-seat and in-school instruction um, and uh, minimize transmission.
3: I want to invite into the conversation Dan Stepanovsky, Superintendent of Los Virginis Unified School District. Dan Stepanovsky, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
3: And just briefly tell us about Los Virginis, really quickly for, for our listeners who might not be familiar.
1: Sure, we're right on the uh, LA County and Ventura County border, um, about uh, four cities, uh, Westlake Village, Agora Hills, Calabasas, Hidden Hills are our cities, 10,500 students, uh, a great place to live, work, and go to school.
3: You have said that the biggest challenge you think for parents will be quarantining when cases occur. It's not a matter of if, but but most superintendents and and health experts agree that there will be cases. And we've already seen, of course, a few um, as schools have opened. But why do you say that the biggest challenge for parents will be quarantining?
1: Sure. Great question. And I think it gets back to the modified quarantine, which is confusing for for parents. Mm. It's confusing for staff, confusing for me. Um, and so, since we sit, since part of our district is both in Ventura County and LA County, that makes it even more interesting. LA County is not following a modified uh, quarantine, um, so if there, you know, if there's a close contact in classrooms, they have to go home. Ventura County is, and it's really confusing to parents um, to explain that to them because it's, you know, if you think, well, my child's a close contact, you know, they probably should be home. The challenge, the other challenge is. You know, my request to Sacramento, what really helped schools and parents and most importantly, kids is a little more flexibility on a virtual academy and virtual instruction.
3: When kids are quarantined, you mean?
1: Yes, exactly. The governor and the legislature, you know, got rid of the flexibility we had last year to, you know, encourage um, schools to reopen. I get it. We were the first to reopen in all of L.A. County. There's 80 school districts in L.A. County. The kids need to be in classrooms with each other and with their, you know, amazing teacher. But of course, as you said, and the good doctor said, there's going to be cases um, and there's going to be quarantine. And right now, the only mechanism to provide support for students when they're quarantined is independent study, which is clunky and really scary to parents. Like, what do you mean I'm getting independent study? That just sounds like packets and no connection. We've built a virtual school and the state's not funding it. We're paying for the teachers, hoping that the, the governor and legislature course correct on this um but we've built a short-term virtual academy and it can be just that a short-term location for the kids to be to receive direct instruction from zoom classrooms from online teachers as they stay home we don't want those poor kids who haven't been in class much to be further isolated from their teacher and classmates
3: Mm. well i would like to ask you more about that after the break stay with us we're talking about all the changes for 2021 and 2022 academic year. Stay with us. I'm Nina Kim.
6: We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're
3: listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing how Back to School Month is going for California school children and their families and taking your questions about how schools are keeping unvaccinated kids safe. We're with Dr. Erica Pond, California State Epidemiologist at the State Department of Public Health. Vanessa Rancano is with us, Education Reporter for KQED. And Dan Stepanovsky, Superintendent for Los Los Virginis Unified School District. You can join the conversation uh, by giving us a call, 866-733-6786 emailing your questions or comments to forum at kqed.org or you can get in touch on twitter or facebook at kqed forum just before the break dan Stepanovsky, you were talking about uh, this virtual zoom academy that you have created and just so that i'm clear is this just for students who are on quarantine so that they don't lose sort of that live interaction with a teacher? Or is it also because you think that there are parents who will want to opt for a remote learning program that was similar to what they had last year?
1: Great and important question. This would just be for students who are required to quarantine.
3: Mm. If,
1: if we'd wanted to continue you know, a virtual school, then that would have been something we, flexibility we would have needed in the spring as we, you know, develop our staffing and do our hiring. To shift now uh, would be impossible for districts across the state. And there's a thousand school districts in California.
3: But that said, Vanessa, it sounds like at least some parents you have spoken to in the Bay Area, that's exactly what they want, right?
2: Yeah. And I've talked to a number of parents who I think would be more interested in keeping their kids in distance learning if it didn't mean losing their spot at their kid's school. You know, in some cases, it's competitive to get into these schools. They'd they'd be giving up um, a really valuable spot. And so they're opting to stay in person despite quite a bit of discomfort.
3: Um, well, just to underscore the point, this listener writes, my kid is one of those who liked online school. It her lo- suited her learning style and personality. She's older now. Her school is mandating kids to come to class with very strict rules about who can do online school. I wish schools could be more flexible with kids, though I understand that there are limits to what they can handle, but it made me think of homeschooling as an option. So, wow, Vanessa Duncan, you're saying that kids, at least in some of the districts here, if they opt in to uh, a virtual environment, they may not be able to get back into the school that they originally enrolled in?
2: Right. The districts have said that they would prioritize them, but it's not typically a guarantee.
3: Well, this listener asked, do school districts pay for testing or do families pay? Superintendent Stepanovsky? Stepanovsky?
1: We've been paying for all of it. No charge to families whatsoever.
3: And this is in part because of support from state and federal dollars? Correct around the teaching, uh, around the testing part of it. Um, And Dr. Pond, uh, Superintendent Soponofsky mentioned that modified quarantine has been a bit confusing. Can you just explain a little bit more what the rules are around modified quarantine? You you touched on it earlier, but. Sure, I'm happy to. So essentially, um, when there are cases
5: identified in the classroom or in the school setting, if it was observed and if both parties, the uh, what we call the index case or the person who's known to be infected and tested positive and the identified contacts, if they were all wearing their masks correctly, then um, the contacts can actually continue to come to school. The case still needs to be isolated at home, but the contacts who've been identified can still attend school. They cannot do anything else outside of school, um, but they are, and of course, continue to wear the mask. And you know, again, the idea in, about masks in general is that you are, have been doing source control and also some protection for the wearer. So the risks um, are much, much lower. And we've seen data both in schools and out of schools that the risk is much lower for, for transmission. So we are, of course, watching this um, very closely given the Delta um, variant, but um, there's uh, this was part of uh, the CDC guidance as well. And a lot of great data from other states that uh, used this during the last school year.
3: This listener asks: Can Dr. Pond compare the risk of severe illness to unvaccinated children of the Delta variant compared with the risk from the yearly flu?
5: Sure, that's a, a great question, and uh, I thought where that question was going was uh, the Delta variant compared to prior variants. Yes, <laughs> which is um, you know also being looked at right now. I will say in general that um you know as we know the delta variant is is much more infectious than what we were seeing last year it's two times as infectious and it's uh, faster, stronger, and fitter is the way I've been describing it to people. There's just a lot more of it. It moves faster, um, and it finds our most vulnerable. So because kids under 12 are 15% of our population, they're a very significant proportion of the unvaccinated. As far as compared to seasonal flu, we have seen a lot more, um, You know, thankfully still rare, but we've seen a lot more pediatric deaths and hospitalizations from uh, COVID-19 than we have from flu, even in a severe flu season.
3: So you're saying that it's more infectious, um, more transmissible, and you said that it was stronger and fitter in terms of as a variant. But what do we know so far in terms of whether or not um, it makes kids sicker, potentially more deadly, has more severe outcomes? Uh,
5: So there's, um, there's still a lot of data looking at in general if it's more serious for all ages um and I think there's some data suggesting that but the jury is still out definitively but there are some data suggesting it's more serious causing more hospitalizations in general across the board and again we're seeing more proportion of cases in kids because kids uh, under 12 are ineligible for vaccination but there isn't any data suggesting it's different um, for kids versus others and I think the other thing we've seen that is still the same about this virus this uh is that it comes into our bodies with something called the ACE2 receptor and the younger the child, the less receptors we have for that. But what Delta does is it's much stickier and it can enter, there's more of it and it's stickier and is uh, able to enter kind of the, the human body more easily. So kids have less of those receptors, but when you're kind of, you know, some of the studies have shown a thousand times more virus um, in a patient, you know, compared to prior strains. So when you just have more of it, you're going to have more infection and potentially more serious infection, but kids are still at lower risk than other ages.
3: Can I ask your honest opinion on what parents are, should be entitled or should know about positive cases at their school. And the reason that I ask this is that LA Unified, um, you know, the largest district in California, has decided not to disclose to parents and students, even in classrooms, that a child has tested positive for uh, COVID-19, if they were not in close contact with the student, which they defined as any student or staff member who's been within six feet for more than 15 minutes uh, with that student, do you think that that is the right call?
5: So I think the precedent actually pre-COVID was very much in this vein. So if we had cases of whooping cough in a school or meningococcal meningitis, you know, uh, with the detailed contact investigation, you know, you interview the case and or their family and the teachers and the administrators, and you figure out who's been exposed, and you notify those people. And, you know, we're always trying to balance in public health, and certainly, you know, on the ground, people who are doing this work, trying to balance confidentiality of students and or staff. So I think that's, again, the balance um, everywhere, and especially in a school setting. So I think, Um, You know, on the other side of it, you know, and again, speaking as a parent, I know people want to sort of know what's going on. And that's certainly, uh, I think COVID-19 and this pandemic have really changed people's interest in wanting to know about outbreaks and where they are. And um, I think we've really tipped that balance more in the direction of more public information about, um, but I think historically and our precedent in public health has really been to notify the people that need to know that are directly impacted and then give important prevention messages to those that were not directly impacted. So I think it's a delicate balance and each each school district and school needs to find that balance.
3: Yes, well certainly you wouldn't need to identify the student, but if they were in the classroom, in the classroom, don't you think parents should know?
5: I think if they're in the classroom, they will most likely be identified as a, as a contact.
3: Um, this listener asks, what are the rules around school sports? I see kids playing with masks half on, and this feels like a super spreader event. How are schools handling parents showing up to watch games and the like? Superintendent Stepanowski, do you have any uh, response for this listener about how schools are handling parents showing up to games, kids not always masking properly when they're playing sports?
1: Sure. Great question. I've got two kids playing high school sports myself. Um, It's interesting. We're waiting for some CDPH updates that we haven't received yet. We received our first one yesterday. Um, Essentially, they're supposed to be masked up during practices and not required during games or heavy exertion. And there's just, I believe yesterday, uh, a masking requirement for any indoor um, spectator events that have a thousand or more. Uh, students. So those are the, those are the restrictions that I'm aware of right now. Last year, we had mandatory testing for student athletes, uh, each week. We're ramping up to return that in position, but I, I, I haven't seen anything, any requirements from CDPH on that yet.
3: Do you have anything coming down the pike, Dr.
5: Pond? Yes, we are actively working on that, and uh, we do know there's a lot of questions. So, thanks for your patience on that. Um, we're actively working on on issuing that um, those updated recommendations.
3: Courtney writes, "I would like to know Dr. Pond's honest opinion about schools remaining open with COVID cases continuing to rise again. Do you think we'll make it through doing in-person instruction?"
5: Yeah, great question. I am glad you're asking that because I know it is top of mind for parents. And again, I'm a parent myself. I'm a pediatric infectious disease specialist. And I, um, again, weighing all the uh, pros and cons, I think we've seen so many downsides of our uh, of kids being at home. Uh, my husband is actually a pediatrician as well and is seeing a lot more obesity, which is going to lead to more diabetes, not to mention the emotion, emotional and social developmental issues. So And very importantly, I think with all these layers, if um, and it's a community effort, so it's the school administrators, it's parents working with their kids to talk about the importance of masks and wearing them. Um, but we have shown, uh, and in other countries that saw Delta sooner, if, if all these layers of mitigation Um, are used. And again, you can ramp them up and down depending on the levels of transmission. And you know, uh, we, that's why also we have provided, you know, free testing resources for all schools. That's another way, just another tool on top of the others to help uh, prevent cases in schools. So I am Uh, really grateful that kids are back in school and I am optimistic that we um, will keep them in school and as as mentioned we want to manage expectations there are going to be cases as we've been discussing um, and you can act on those quickly to prevent outbreaks and prevent in-school transmission which again we've seen over and over more and more data showing that that's possible.
3: Again, Dr. Erica Pon is with the State Department of Public Health. Vanessa Dancano is education reporter for KQED, and Dan Stepnoski is superintendent for Los Virginis Unified School District. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Dr. Pon, I guess another way to ask that question is, do you see any scenario when the state would close schools again, like was done in March of 2020? What would be the conditions that would require that kind of action again, given the fact that we are dealing with a more virulent, more transmissible virus?
5: Yeah, I think um, really the more important thing is going to be doing a lot of the things we talked about at that local level of of, uh, kind of swooping in and making sure when you see cases or even outbreaks that you're acting quickly to prevent additional cases. And I think that is really the strategy that we are emphasizing. I think we've again seen the importance of our schools being open and a huge loss from the, the last year and a half. And our highest priority is to keep schools open and keep our kids in seats. So, um, you know, obviously we want to keep our school safe and that's what all of these measures are for and I have confidence that with these measures and if again as our community effort and just since I haven't emphasized enough vaccination is really key and we need to make progress on our teenagers that are eligible and as soon as we get that approval for under 12 year olds we want to emphasize the importance of getting uh, kids under 12 vaccinated as well but right now every adult who is living with kids who are in school and certainly schools and Um, staff and administrators, getting vaccinated is also the way we will keep our kids in school.
3: What are you hearing about when children under 12 will be eligible for vaccination, Dr. Pond?
5: Yes, great question. I know many are anxious to hear. And my understanding is that um, uh, Pfizer may be submitting their data for uh, 5 to 11-year-olds as soon as next month. Um, So I think, you know, definitely this fall is is the hope that we will see submission from the manufacturers uh, for approval for that 5 to 11-year-old age range and hopefully approval soon after that.
3: This listener writes, for the superintendent, how are the teachers in his district coping? I worry about burnout of the teachers from the last two years of online and then in-person COVID teaching. And do you have enough teachers? Dan Stepanovsky?
1: Great question. Um, none of this happens without, you know, amazing and dedicated teachers in the classroom, and that's something we're watching very closely. We're worried about the anxiety and stress in our students and our staff uh, at the same time, so it's checking in. I was walking school sites uh, this morning. We drove to all of our 14 schools just today and dropped off a soft pretzel on a note for all of our 1,100 staff, so it's, I think it's all, it's, it's a lot of the little things, lifting each other up, kindness and gratitude, um, and staying flexible. It. We're all a bit surprised, that it's not more normal right now, but I think Dr. Pond hit it. We can do this um, and we have to thread a needle. We have to keep people safe, but obviously we can't you know, have our kids home for you know more time. They need to be with each other and be in classrooms. So it's it's a challenging operation and balancing act. Um, and it takes all of us uh, to do the right thing. If your child doesn't feel well, you're staying home until we get it checked out with the same with our staff also. So our decisions like never before impact those around us. And I've shared that with our parents. I've said, look, look, if you send your child in, and he doesn't feel well. That impacts all of his friends sitting around him, all the classmates, the teacher. Um, so it's you know, well, it's frustrating to have a kid home for a short period of time to figure out what's going on. It's it's the important long term thing to do to help everybody.
3: Vanessa, can you. We've been talking about specific districts and how they are implementing the state guidelines but what have you find found as the best resources to find specific information about how individual districts or schools are implementing um the the, the mandates as well as the recommendations of the state
2: I mean, you have to go to the individual district, and some have better websites than mm. others. Some are pretty tricky to navigate. I think some districts have been better than others in terms of communicating directly with parents, um, but some have, you know, FAQs on their sites. Some have sort of grids that they've created with protocols. Um,
3: so it really yeah, varies.
2: <laughs> it, like it really varies. <laughs>
3: Um, And then this listener writes, can a parent switch their child to online learning at any time?
2: Yes, they can. They should. At least the districts that I've reported on here, they will all allow that. And then legally, they're required to move students back to in person within five days, um, which is logistically a bit complicated for districts. um, And I think I think that um, folks who run the independent study programs might work with parents to try to say, you know, it's a really bad time, like we're in the middle of assessments right now, why don't you wait a couple weeks and then move, something like that. But if a parent really wants to go back, they've got to do it within five days.
3: Mm. And uh, Superintendent Sabinovsky, I've been understanding that schools have to have some kind of a re-engagement strategy if students don't regularly attend their online or independent study check-ins.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, then that's an important part of it. We uh, increased the number of counselors we had. We brought in uh, LMFTs. We did some targeted class size reduction. But, yeah, we worry a lot about students who, um, you know, drop off the radar, stop communicating and connecting with us. And we've done everything from phone calls to home visits. Uh, it's been effective, yeah. but it's uh, it's a lot of
3: work. We have less than a minute, but I do wonder what keeps you up at night. What are your hopes for this year?
1: What keeps me up at night? Yep. Everything.
3: <laughs> there is just so much to have to consider, isn't there? Well, really appreciate having you on, Superintendent Sepinowski. Thank you very much. Superintendent of the Los Virginis Unified School District, also so glad to have Vanessa D'Ancagno of KQED, and of course, Dr. Erica Pon, California State Epidemiologist uh, with the State Department of Public Health. And you've been listening to Forum. Tina Lauerberg produced today's segment. Forum is also produced by Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace One, and Nina Sparling, Susan Britton, our Acting Senior Editor, Judy Campbell, Engineers Danny Bringer, Katie McMurran, and Chris Hoff, Interns Kimia Akbari and Jennifer Eng, Our Executive Editors, Ethan Tovan Lindsay, Chief Content Officer is Holly Kernan, and I'm Mina Kim.
6: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.